Ministry Mentorship, Episode 35. Welcome to this episode of Ministry Mentorship. This is Jacob Tapia, and you're listening to a podcast dedicated to connecting apostolic leaders with young ministers for the purpose of helping them develop in their ministry. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Pastor Doug White from Silsby, Texas. Brother White is a tremendous preacher who has a heart for young ministers. In this episode, you'll hear him share his personal testimony of salvation and how God led him into ministry. Before we do, I want to tell you about a special event happening next week. Uh, This is our first ministry mentorship online workshop, and Pastor Wayne Huntley from Raleigh, North Carolina, is going to be speaking on the subject of launching your ministry through teaching home Bible studies. This is going to be an incredible resource for your ministry, and I want you to check it out. Uh, You can click on the link in the podcast page, or you can go to ministrymentorship.com backslash workshop. And we want you to stop by and check this out. That's ministrymentorship.com backslash workshop, or you can find the link in our podcast page below. Now let's join the first part of our conversation with Pastor Doug White. We're glad to have Brother Doug White with us today. He is the uh, pastor of Abundant Life Church in Silsby, Texas, where he's been pastoring for just over 25 years and he's been in, in ministry for 35 years, and it's an honor to have him with us today. Brother White, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, buddy, for inviting me. And Brother White, tell us a little bit of your story. Well, as far as my story, uh, you know, if I went all the way back to the beginning, I was not raised in church. wish that I had been. Uh, in fact, that still to this day is one of those things that bothers me a little bit. I wish that I had been raised in this. Uh, but I was raised far, far away from God. Had a great mother. Uh, she died when I was 11 in a car wreck. I had an alcoholic father. He was a good man in many ways, but he had a bad substance abuse. And, uh, you know, my childhood was raised very uh, awkwardly, moved around a lot. Uh, my dad was involved in a lot of things that were not legal. Uh, I don't ever remember living in one place over three months at a time until after I was married. And uh, then my father died. Uh, one week after I graduated, I graduated a little early. He died a week after that, so for the most part, I was homeless at a very young age. But uh, uh, as far as church, my introduction to church uh, is there was an individual that uh, was supposed to be in the church in an apostolic church, ironically, that ran off with my dad and left the husband, sent in an apostolic church to run off with my father, who was an alcoholic, and she is the one that first started talking about the things of God. I remember shaking my fist in her face, telling her there wasn't a God. Uh, if there was, he'd kill her for what she had done. <laughs> Ironically, there was a uh, there was a young girl that invited me to a church. It was a different apostolic church on the other in the other direction, about ten miles. And uh, that's when I started feeling uh, the presence of God for the first time. Uh, when I was just uh, very young. Really, it wasn't one of those situations that I turned to God because I didn't have anything else. I didn't have anything else, but the reason I turned to God was because there was just such a hunger in me, and I was actually invited by a young person. That's awesome. What a testimony, and and now you're pastoring. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, your ministry and uh, kind of give us an overview of what you feel like God has called you to do in your purpose. Sure. 
Sure. Well, as I said, because of my background, the only real solid thing, only real stable thing I ever knew uh, in my life was when I came into the church. Uh, I guess, for lack of another way of saying it, I was blessed with what I call a sincere integrity and in that I didn't have any kind of a history whatsoever in any kind of church. And where I came from, there was an array of sins that were basically just a badge of acceptance in my world. So when I came to God, I was just me. I didn't have anything to prove. I had no hypocrisy because I was raised with no aspirations or anything higher than just a lifestyle of sin. But I was blessed with a good grip on reality because the lifestyle that I lived, and I carried that same integrity into my walk with God when I finally found God. And I found the more committed I gave myself to God, the more that God began to do with me. I lived for God as passionately as I knew how. Great sacrifice uh, in the early days. Uh, great sacrifice in the early days to live for God because of the things that I had to endure uh, and different things, such as I literally had to suffer some beatings and stuff because I wanted to live for God. Uh, but the fact is, I lived for God after my father died. Uh, I remember being in the prayer room one day, and uh, God began to call me to preach. I remember the day I was on my knees. For some reason, I was caught up in the Spirit, crawling around on my knees in a prayer room. I remember my knees being rug burned, but I, I remember I used to reject it when I'd feel any urges towards such a thing as a calling like that. And I, I first came into the church. We had a pastor at that church that went bad during my short time in the church. And I mentioned the kind of life that my father lived. And... Uh, I'd already started doing some of that stuff before I came to God. So when God began to call me, I was telling him, God, I've seen good men fall, and I, I don't have anything in my world and my history that qualifies me for that. I'm not worthy, and I'm not able. And I'll never forget the moment that God spoke to me as Christian clear as I'd ever heard him speak to me, brother. In that moment, God said, my blood will make you worthy, and my anointing will make you able. I just need you to be available. And the rest is history. I've been preaching now for over 35 years. Uh, my ministry is very different, I suspect, than, than some ministries. I love preaching faith. I love preaching uh, high services. But I think one of the things that a lot of our preachers fall into the trap of today is they don't really understand their calling. Uh, I have a really good grip on my calling in, in that I know that uh, I deal with a lot of apostolic order. I deal with a lot of uh, commitment issues. I am just a real believer that in this day and age, one of the great missing elements among us is real conviction preaching. And I think there's some serious reasons why we don't have more conviction preaching, but, but I just know my ministry and I know that I'm more of a commitment type preacher. And, uh, when it's all said and done, buddy, the Lord has used that. And I'm very thankful. I don't feel qualified, but I, I do hope that, that his blood made me more than his anointing made me able because I literally had nothing else to lean on, but God's been very good to me. And uh, again, the rest is history. I've been doing this for a long time now. Uh, Brother White, you talked about your calling and and how you felt like God uh, had really dealt with you in prayer and seeking after him. Talk a little bit about how you got started. What were some of the first uh, ministry opportunities that you had? (laughs) I have a, a sermon diary of every message that I've ever preached. One of the best things my bishop ever told me to do when I first started preaching, he took me aside and he said, I want you to start right now writing down and get you a diary, a journal, something to uh, that you can log all your messages, where you preached, what you preached, and uh, 
the very first message I ever preached, obviously, was in a youth service at uh, our home church there in a little town called Crothersville, Indiana, is where I came into the church at. And uh, I preached there a time or two, and then uh, they had me preaching in nursing homes. Had me preaching. I started working with the jail ministry. And, uh, you know, I just, anywhere I could put my hands to work that I felt like I was doing something for God, that's what I was interested in doing. So in those early days, you know, I, uh, I again, I didn't have a whole lot of history. Uh, I didn't have any background, really. Then as, as time went on, after I'd been preaching for a little bit, I married my wife, feeling, you know, that's when I was really feeling the call of God developed in my world anyway. I married my wife. Her dad was a pastor, and they had five daughters. And all of them had married preachers except my uh, baby daughter and my wife's baby sister. She married a pastor's son. So it was kind of an awkward thing that all of them had married preachers or a pastor's son, and my wife made the son of the town drunk. So <laughs> <laughs> ultimately, it worked out in that, uh, you know, there were doors there that, that opened up. I preached for her family some, but, you know, that was uh, long after I'd already started preaching and preached in nursing homes. I preached street services. I uh, Anywhere that, that they'd point me and say, this is what they needed, that's just what I did. It wasn't a matter of pride or ego. I didn't carry any of that with me into the church because I didn't have none just to, to lean on. So whatever they wanted, that's what I did. Whatever my pastor asked me to do, I did. I, I uh, used to have a jail ministry in uh, a prison in Henryville, Indiana. And a lot of cutting my teeth in ministry was kind of interesting because when a lot of these guys would get out of jail, we'd ask them where they lived at. We'd go meet them, supposed to meet them at the church. A lot of them didn't show up, but I had a lot of opportunities to run uh, Indianapolis area there, Bishop Morris Golder's church, Bishop Tyson's church, Elder Ferris, a lot of those churches up there. We'd go up there to meet these guys when they'd get out to try to establish them into a local congregation. And, uh, I just had a passionate love affair with preaching anyway, and some of those guys were just unbelievable preachers. So uh, believe it or not, even that helped develop me, not just preaching the prison part, but trying to meet these guys in these other environments. Wow. What what an opportunity. You talked a little bit about uh, your ministry and, and speaking on apostolic order. Can you explain sure. that just a little bit? Well, uh, I... I love the organization we're part of. I think the United Pentecostal Church is the greatest apostolic organization we've got going. Uh doesn't necessarily mean that I agree 10,000% with everything that happens, but I do believe that God has an apostolic order in our churches. And I think uh, one of the big things of apostolic order is I, I've long, long, long maintained, buddy, that there will never again be true apostolic revival in our midst until we have apostolic order in our churches. We'll never have apostolic order in our churches until we have apostolic authority in our pulpits again. And we'll never have apostolic authority in our pulpits again until our people go back to a true, genuine apostolic hunger. And by apostolic order, I don't mean some hierarchy of this preacher's over that preacher, this uh, role takes precedent over that role. I mean, there is a an order. Everything God did, He did in the divine order. Right. Uh, even the creation of the world, He did that in an order. And when a church gets in that order that God wants the church to be in, where the people are listening to the pulpit, the pulpit is listening to the to the God that that created the church. When you get a church working like a 
a fine oiled engine, everything starts popping in that church, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, I think a lot of things that we see in our churches right now, a lot of the things that we've uh, seen develop in our churches are so far from what God really wants in an apostolic church. And I certainly don't just mean no standards, people walking away from those kind of commitments. But I do believe that there is an element uh, of apostolic authority we've got to go back to. Uh, there's got to be a real fear of God that's restored in our churches. There's got to be that. You can't. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. Amen. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute, but first I want to make you aware of a special series that we're offering at Ministry Mentorship by one of the most respected Bible teachers in the United Pentecostal Church International. James Merrick has put together a powerful end-time prophecy series that we're making available for download on our website. Brother Merrick is a powerful preacher and minister of the gospel with over 40 years of active ministry. You'll be blessed by his insight into the scriptures and and this series will be a, a valuable resource for your apostolic library. Find out more by going to ministrymentorship.com and clicking on the products link. Now let's get back to our interview with Pastor Doug White. We do need to hear more about that. And sometimes we can get, I feel like we can get maybe more westernized and sometimes oh, yeah. be overtaken by the culture that we forget that our culture is not uh, the the final say, we, we need to have a Christian culture. Without a doubt. That's one thing I've long maintained. You know, I, I have a, a racially diverse congregation, and one of the things that has been very good to me, one of the things that I've taught here, you know, because there's some things we want to uh, we want to dismiss the need of because they say, well, that's the uh, Caucasian culture, that's the African-American culture, that's the Hispanic culture. I just have always took a real strong stand against that mentality. When you come to God, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. We have to have a righteous, the, the culture of God is holiness. God said, you be holy because I'm holy. The culture of God is holiness. He's love. He's holiness. So I think when we come into the church, when we spend too much time talking about black culture, Hispanic culture, Caucasian culture, Asian culture, I realize there's certain things we have to know about that to effectively evangelize in those areas. But realistically, uh, when you really are serving God, the only culture that really matters to a righteous person is God's culture. And uh, so that goes back to what you were talking about, our westernized thinking. Uh, so many things when you read the Word of God. I'm a huge fan of Jewish history. Uh, I, anything I can get my hands on that stirs that element in my life, it it, it just rocks my world, buddy. And so many things that uh, we read in the Word of God takes on a completely different meaning when you understand it was not written to a Western mindset. It was written right. to a particular mindset. And uh, so that's, you're exactly right. When we get away from the Western mindset and start realizing what some of these things really deal with, it changes the whole perspective of God's Word. Now, you've pastored and you've ministered for, for many years, and you've traveled all over. In fact, you came and preached our youth convention last year here in Illinois and did a tremendous job, very impacting. Uh, what what qualities do you see in an effective young person? In, in effective young people, again, you know, we've had... Uh, we've had a booming church here when I came here. We we had one young person. Through time, we've we've uh, 
broke some of those barriers. We in one year we had eighty some odd young people pray through in our church, get the Holy Ghost baptized. Uh, ironically, one of those elements that I think is kind of interesting is through time. Uh, of course, I am in a very Pentecostal populized area, uh, populated area here rather, because uh, you know being in Southeast Texas. Somebody tells me that this is the most Pentecostal populated area in the United States. But wow. through the years, we've had 18 different pastors' kids that have prayed through and got the Holy Ghost from a backsliding condition in our church. Excuse me, all of them, but I think one or two. Uh, they moved in, married, moved into our church. But the others, we prayed through in a backsliding condition. So we've had a lot of experience with young people here. But as far as some of the qualities I see that make them effective, uh, I'd say the most effective young people that I've ever seen used of God are, are those that somewhere, first of all, they conquered peer pressure. It's really hard to be what God wants you to be as a young person when you're overly consumed with a lot of peer pressure. You feel like you have to live up to the expectancies of people. I had a pastor's son tell me one time, and I never forgot it. Uh, he had gotten in a bad way and was trying to occupy a role that he was never called to do. He made a statement to me. He said, Brother Life, the hardest weight in the world to carry is the weight of an expectation. Mm. He said, when, when people expect things out of you and you do it because of what's expected, he said, you make a lot of mistakes. Wow. So, first of all, they've got to conquer peer pressure. Secondly, they, they've got to refuse it. And this is mainly for kids that have been raised in the church. They've got to refuse to follow the path of unfaithful relatives that they've had in the church before them. Uh, lineage is a tremendous influence. And uh, when an individual is unfaithful before them, there's always that tendency to try to fall back to that same unfaithfulness. they got to do that. And third, uh, they've got to learn the importance of a genuine walk with God for themselves. So they've got to have a relationship with God and a relationship with a man of God in their world. Very, very important. Ironically, one of the ways I've seen them develop that real walk with God in my experience, you know, it may be different for somebody else, but in my experience, one of the reasons, I mean, excuse me, one of the ways that I see um, that real, genuine relationship with God taking place is they start getting personal, strong personal convictions that, that they won't allow friends or family or anybody else to strip away, even in the face of mockery or, or being teased about it. I've noticed that when they get a real young people, especially when they get a genuine walk with God and a genuine relationship with a man of God, usually that's manifested in their life because they start developing some real serious things. They got One of the things that I've noticed in dealing with preacher's kids, I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, what's made you effective with preacher's kids? I don't know that it's so much me. Uh, my church has been very effective with preacher's kids. You know, one of the things that I've found with preacher's kids, once they develop a relationship with God to the point that they really believe, even if my mom and dad were not this, I'd still be apostolic. Mm. Once you get in there, you've won the battle. Because most kids, whether we want to admit it or not, most preacher's kids live under the, uh, the cloud of would I still be this if my mom and dad weren't this. And uh, I'm not talking about pastors that make silly mistakes, or preachers' families that make silly mistakes. But I'm talking about even good pastors. Sometimes they lose their kids because their kids have never really established that even if mom and dad weren't this, this is exactly what I would be. Uh, so I think whoever it is, once they get a genuine walk with God, you'll start noticing the, the traits of that real walk with God because they'll get convictions. 
there'll be certain things in their spirit that they, they refuse to let go of. At least that's been my observation. Now, you mentioned just a minute ago about the importance of having a pastor and, and being in relationship with a pastor. Talk sure. a little bit about that and, and also the importance of having mentors in your life. Oh, absolutely. I, I've i got an entire lesson that I do for young preachers and churches around the world that deals with the anointing of sonship. don't know if you've ever heard about it. Maybe you haven't, but no, I, I haven't. I, I've actually got a lot of it put down even in another book that I, I'm wanting to try to to eventually deal with, but I, I've put this thing in a lot of different meetings, camps, different places, ministers, conferences. I find in Scripture that there is a direct correlation between the depths of one's anointing and the depths of their commitment and submission to spiritual authority in their lives. I, uh, In fact, there is one Scripture in the Old Testament that literally, when it's translated correctly, it literally translates that there are some that were like wild asses without reins. They had the flared nostrils. They got the strong flanks. Mm. Man, they can get up and hoop and get people worked up. But they do not answer to any spiritual authority in their life. I am of the opinion, buddy, that anybody, in fact, I'm so firmly convinced about this, buddy, that I've literally preached to my church the day that you see me or any of these young preachers in this church that are not submitted to spiritual authority, you don't have to listen to another thing that I say because I believe my church's safety is contingent upon the fact that I have spiritual authority in my life. Why would I want to preach to them that they have to have submission to spiritual authority if I, as their pastor, don't have submission to spiritual authority? I'm very, very firm on this anointing of sonship. I believe that you have to have spiritual authority in your life. It goes all the way back. I don't really have time to deal with it all right now, but it goes all the way back to even to the order of Aaron. The Bible speaks about the order of Aaron, that the priesthood. The Bible said that the priesthood belongs to Aaron and his sons, and his sons' sons after him forever, for a perpetual statute, forever in their generations, on and on and on. Uh, there were holy garments that were anointed that were to be passed down. The sons had to wear those garments. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really a stickler on this, and I, one of the reasons my church had grown uh, to the point when I got here, I'd been here two years, we got just under 100. We could not break that 100 barrier. I had good things happening, but we just couldn't do it. I was on an extended fast, and God began to speak to me about this whole anointing of sonship. When I invested this in my church and told them, I don't want you to dress like me. I don't want you to scream like me. But if you're going to be in leadership in this church, you are going to love this church just like I love it. You are going to have a passion for this place, just like I have. What would happen in every church, brother, if, say, you get up in your church and and your leaders started loving and taking the responsibility for that church and its well-being like you do? It would change every church we've got. Wow. Anyway, having said all of that, I'm a real stickler that you've got to have spiritual authority. When my bishop died, I took time to pray fast, seek direction, and immediately put another bishop in my life because I've got to have it. And and the very fact that I've got, uh, at this point, I've got 32 ministers out of our place is only possible because I spend a lot of time with my young ministers. Now, the importance of having somebody that's willing to mentor you, I, I, again, if you have to edit this out, that's, that's cool, but I, I don't understand pastors that have young men that are called to preach that don't invest in them. I'm not against Bible school, but there are things they need to learn in a local church that they need to hear somebody put their hand on them and help them. 
I spend a lot of time with my young preachers. I teach them, train them. Uh, I teach them all kinds of things, sermon preparation, how I put sermons together, how I recognize when God begins to speak to me about a message. Uh, I teach them my study habits, how to get the most out of Scripture. Uh, every aspect of ministry, Sunday night we baptized uh, for Sunday night. What was ironic about that, uh, I had three young preachers that had never baptized anybody, all three of them. I stood there. I helped them. I helped uh, train them, told them what to do. I stood beside them, my hand on their shoulders. They baptized. I try to train every one of my preachers in every area of ministry before they ever evangelize. I want them to know every area that they're going to deal with before they ever pastor. I want them to know all the aspects of pastoring, and I try to work with them and plug them into that in my church. Now, obviously, there's going to be things that blindside every ministry, but I believe you need. Uh, here's one of the reasons that I really believe that to the bottom of my soul. I still believe that Jesus is coming. I still believe we've got a world to reach, but I believe as time's gone on, we don't have 50 more years for them to develop a 50-year-old anointing. We've got to teach them. You know, the old school is you just get out there and learn it the best way you can. That's what I did. I don't want my guys to have to get out there and make the same mistakes or still make themselves for the same periods of time that I did. If I can put my hands on them and I can get them to be touched by the fingerprints of other viable, valuable ministries, then they can know a lot of these things before they ever get there. I hope to God every one of them is a better preacher than I am. I hope they're all better pastors than I am. But that only comes when they've got that relationship. I want that relationship with my young preachers. You've been listening to a Ministry Mentorship Podcast with Jacob Tapia. Find out more about this resource by going to ministrymentorship.com where you'll find more interviews and other resources to help you develop in your ministry. Thanks for listening and God bless.